Hi, everyone, and welcome to another episode of Conversations With. For 19 years, this guy played in the National Football League. For many of those years, he was in the top tier of kickers. 12 of those years he spent in Detroit with the Lions. His name is Eddie Murray, and he's one of my favorite Lions of all time. He's a favorite of mine for being an absolutely rock-solid, steady player, but in addition, he was always available for the media in the good times and the bad. And after he ended his career playing for seven teams and earning a Super Bowl ring with the Dallas Cowboys, he came back to Detroit and settled here to continue a new career and new life. He has a unique perspective on the NFL. He has a unique perspective on kickers. He has a unique perspective on the Lions and their struggles. He's one of the few who can give you a real perspective on the Barry Sanders-Emmett Smith who was better argument because Eddie played with both of them in their primes. And where does Billy Sims fit in that question, huh? Eddie played with Billy, too. He's also an advocate in his post-playing days for those in need and is passionate about his position in Michigan's Hope Network. It's a fast and fascinating conversation with Eddie Murray. I always thought that you were just kind of a Lions guy, but you played 20 years in the league and seven different teams, uh, Cowboys in Washington twice. You had a big, big, long career, and I kind of remember he's one of my guys with the Lions. Yeah, I was uh, well. I was very fortunate just to play 19 years in the NFL, let alone you know the um, career that I ended up having, and and was fortunate to have most of them here in Detroit. Made home here, raised my family here, uh, work here in the off seasons when I played, and uh, you know still working uh, for Hope Network right now. So yeah, it was um, you know definitely not by design. Uh, you know I was fortunate to play as long as I did and uh, very blessed. Well, you came out of Tulane to the Lions, which is in Louisiana. Chiefs, Bucks, Cowboys, Eagles, Vikings, Redskins. Uh, and yet you settled back in Detroit. Can you tell us why? Uh, as I uh, just mentioned earlier, uh, wh- one of the things, I was a little bit of a rarity as a, uh, of an athlete, especially back in the 80s. Uh, so after my rookie year, you know, going to the Pro Bowl, being uh, first rookie to be MVP in the Pro Bowl game. A lot of really great positive things happened um, at that time for me in my career. And um, I was married. I was married three years in college to a, 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 a girl back from Victoria, my hometown. And um, she was saying, you know, you know what, what are we going to do, you know, after all of this? And I remembered having some conversations with, you know, some of the people that I looked up to and admired, you know, the Joe Schmitz and the Jimmy Davids and the Alex Belvecchios that were around in the community. And I would see them at events and, and, uh, you know, I noticed that, you know, they were working also. And, and, um, I, I, I mentioned that, and, you know, you know, I'm not quite sure what I want to do in the off season. And I remember Joe Schmidt looking me in the face and he goes, Ed, stay here. The, the, city of Detroit, the state of Michigan, love their athletes, stay here, get a job. If you need help, I'll help you, all this kind of stuff. But, you know, stay here and, and, and you know, see what happens here. And I tell you what, that's the best thing I ever did. And so for 19 years playing in the NFL, every offseason, I took a job. And job in the offseasons were new business, sales, repping, for automotive companies, you know, doing those type of jobs. 
and um, it, it was, you know, like I said, really the best thing I did because I, I've, I've raised my family here. I'm on a second, uh, my second marriage, and and to and met my present wife here in Detroit, and um, she had her own uh, business at the time. She had a court reporting firm that she had that she had like 12, 15 girls that worked for her to, you know, cover the depositions that she had, and. So when it got to the point that my career in Detroit ended, um, you know, she, she what couldn't move with me because she had her own business. And so I would play in the city, of course, that I was playing in and then come right back and I would get a job in the off season. So uh, that was kind of w- what I fell into at that time. And it was just a very enjoyable existence to still keep playing in the NFL. But I enjoyed coming back and, um, you know, working for different firms or taking on different repping positions and stuff like that. And uh, it ended up being a blessing. Really kind of became uh, your roots, the Detroit area, didn't it? Oh, it sure did. I mean, it was, uh, it was, it was very easy to do at the, at the beginning, you know, uh, you know, the lines at that early stage of the eighties, you know, I came in with the Billy Sims draft. It was very exciting, you know, football, you know, um, was kind of getting rejuvenated back in the early years with Monty Clark as our head coach. And, uh, it, it was a, a you know, a, a great place to live and a great place. To, like I said, to raise my family. You just mentioned football and Billy Sims era. Talk to me about your career in Detroit. You, your, your teams were sometimes always close, but never were able to get over the hump. Is that how you well, characterize that? You got close once to the NFC championship game. Yeah, I mean, uh, of all the uh, – so my 12-year tenure here, we made the playoffs three times. And one of them was the 82 year when we were um, uh, four and five. And I only – so I only had two winning seasons, but we made the playoffs three times. So that, that uh, 92 season – we were four and five, so we weren't a winning season, but we made the playoffs and then lost to Washington in the first round of the playoff games. And then after that, you know, I only had two winning seasons. So we weren't the greatest of teams, but we played exciting football. We had exciting individual players that played. We just didn't play really good team football to, to win and go to the playoffs a lot. So that was kind of, in a nutshell, what the lines were in that in that in that decade of the '80s, where they were good teams, exciting to watch, but we just didn't win a lot. That's the thing. I looked at the the roster, and those were the years that I was working in Detroit, and those were the years that I started broadcasting Lions football games. And I kept thinking, there's so many names on the lists of teams over those years that were big names. I mean, Herman and. Uh, you, you had Brat, you had Billy Sims, you had Doug English. Chuck Long came in as a quarterback at one point. But it seemed like you never were able to get the, whatever it was, get over the hump. And the one thing I noticed was it was that quarterback position. If you got that guy, it seemed like you could get over the hump of being close to 500 and make one or two more wins to get you into the playoffs more often. Do you think that position was key during that decade? Well, it's key today, right, Jim? Absolutely. I mean, you know, if, if, if you don't have a good quarterback, you're really not going to win. So, yeah, absolutely. But it you was, tried. The thing is, you, you kind got, of an Achilles kill. Right. You guys tried so many, you know, Eric, well, we did, Gary, and, uh, you had Hilger, you had Long, you had a bunch of guys. 
oh, yeah, we had Mike Maturik. We had, uh, you know, I mean, and we had uh, Andre Ware. We had Rodney Pete. We had, uh, you know, uh, Eric Kramer. You know, they're, they're all, um, you know, and then, you know, we changed offenses. I mean, when we went to the running shoot, which wasn't that popular at the time. It was popular in college, but it wasn't popular in the pros. So we totally revamped an offense when we brought in Mouse Davis and June Jones, you know, to bring in the, the uh, run and shoot offense at that time. So those were some tenuous years trying to develop that at the pro level. And it didn't succeed, you know, even to the fact that we brought in Andre Ware, who ran the run and shoot for Houston, won a Heisman trophy with it, but he couldn't really adapt at the, the pro level running the run and shoot. So, Great athlete, great arm, knew what he was doing. But he, Mouse Davis had a different terminology for the plays than the offense coordinator he had in uh, in college. So he, he had a hard time translating just the terminology of the play. He knew it in his head, but he would uh, – I remember guys saying he was calling plays that were Houston plays because <laughs> that's what was in his head. And they're going, what the hell is that? You know, we don't know what that is. So uh, nothing against uh, – uh, Andre, because he was a phenomenal talent, but those were some of the stumbling blocks that you had. Just because you had someone who won a Heisman Trophy who ran the run and shoot didn't mean you were going to win, and it didn't for us. Well, one of the things about you is you were so good. Uh, you were just so – it's it's funny, Eddie, when you're as good as you are and as consistent as you are, it's like people take you for granted over the years. It's like, oh, here comes Eddie. It's going to be good. I mean, Jason, I think, had that same thing. We were blessed in Detroit to have kickers like yeah, you and Jason. Jason. Had a phenomenal career. Yeah, over, yeah, over, but you both, over 20 years, Detroit never worried about a kicker, ever, about, you know, the extra points and all that. You only missed seven extra points in 19 years. I mean, that's yeah. just unbelievable. Talk to me about that consistency and being, quote, unquote, the guy that someone has taken for granted because you're so good. Well, it was, uh, you know, something I, I took pride in because I, I knew, it, even when I came into the game, and like I said, I had a, such an unbelievable rookie year with, with being voted into the Pro Bowl because back then the players and coaches voted you and not the fans. And it was a game back then, all that kind of stuff compared to what it is now. Uh, so, you know, I, I, I knew that I needed to get better and I was very aware of the fact that – you know, in the NFL, there, there, I now have no backup. Like in college, there were two or three guys behind me. You know, and punters. So in the NFL, punters and kickers, you're either employed or unemployed. And I was very aware of that very quickly. Just seeing how tenuous being employed in the NFL was, and especially back in those days, because there, you know there were guys that were really good, or guys that were that you thought would be good, and they would get hurt, and then someone would take their place, of course, and then do well. And then all of a sudden that person was cut. They didn't need him anymore. They're going, hey, we, we found someone who is healthy and playing rather than someone who has potential, did well, got hurt, and can't come get back on the field. So those scenarios were, were forefront for me to not take things for granted. And I, I worked very hard at trying to be the best kicker keeping myself in the best shape and trying to get better and better every year when I played in the NFL. Well, you have a unique perspective because you, you were so good. And 
it's one of those situations where you're so good, you're so consistent that people remember the ones you missed and not necessarily the ones you made. And in 93 or 83, excuse me, you missed that field goal against San Francisco in the playoffs. The iconic picture of Monty Clark, you know, holding his hands in prayer. Mm-hmm. And, and, and you missed that one. And I saw an article that you wrote. This is, I'm not going to let that define me and what I've done. And, and that's the way kickers have to live with that every time they take a step across the white line, don't they? Well, unfortunately, you know, that, that's what kickers are rema- uh, reminded of uh, is their misses. You know, so uh, it's always there. Uh, you know, I, I, like, like we are here, here we are today, right? So that was 83. I know. I always get asked about that kick where, you know, depending on, you know, I, like I can think of ones really quickly of ones that I made that made a difference, changed games around, won games, all that kind of stuff. So even though I've made more than I missed, it's just part of being a kicker. You just have to accept that people are going to remember that. But like I had said in previous uh, interviews, I don't want that kick to define me. I remembered when, um, so the, the stat for kickers that w- is uh, percentage. So to be eligible for the percentage uh, uh, ranking is you have to make your hundredth kick in the NFL. Otherwise, you don't make the list. Okay. So when I made it. I was at the time the second most accurate kicker in NFL history when I made it. Ralph Bernerska was the first guy on that list. Wow, he wow. was he was seventy two point six and I was seventy two point two. I ended my career at seventy six percent. I think that's I, and amazing. I hope people identify me with that. So I played you know, you know how hard it is to gain those percentage points, right? Oh, you have to play a long time. Oh, you not only have to, to play that. a long time, but you have a lot of opportunities. And they're from, and remember back then you're playing outside a lot. You're playing in the wind. Oh yeah, and you're playing yeah, in the course. Midwest for the most part. Oh, I mean, I I played at uh, the old uh, uh, Milwaukee County Stadium. I played in uh, Metropolitan Stadium in in uh, uh, Minnesota. Uh, you know, you had Shea Stadium. You had uh, you know. Uh, the old uh, Chicago, uh, I mean Cleveland Stadium. You know, uh, you know they weren't the great greatest venues to play in compared to what they're in now. But you know, because I bring that stat up, and that stat was the year after I missed that kick. So I got better. That was my thing. I don't want to be defined by just that one kick. I hope people will realize that that one kick motiv- motivated me to become a better kicker. Do you and rem- it did. Yeah. Do you remember or do you have a number of how many game winners you can, you, you made? I, I think I'm in around uh, 15 uh, <laughs> that, I've, that I've had. Uh, I, I think it's like 15 out of 19 or something like that. Isn't it amazing like they remember the, that I had four? Isn't it amazing they remember yeah. the one you missed and yet 16, 17 times uh, you were there when the game was on the line, all the pressure in the world, and you came through. I, I, again, it's just, I, I know that that's part of it, but I, I wanted to bring that example of when I made the percentage ranking, I was second. Well, now I'm like, Oh God, I think I'm, I gotta be in the twenties now. Yeah. The kickers have gotten so good. 
and they're so good even from distance. It's like uh, what, what uh, Matt Prater. I mean, I, I, you know, he's uh, close to the um, uh, Jason's uh, 50 yard uh, record uh, for most 50 yarders. But I mean, I think he missed like like four 50 yarders in his career. I mean, it's crazy. Yeah, it is crazy. When you think of that, what you know, when you think of that, and, and with Justin Tucker and his record uh, uh, that he's he's compiling up with his career as it's continuing to go he's you know i think maybe the best that i've ever seen kick a football you know and i've seen some pretty good ones you yeah. know so well the thing that i think people don't also remember is in 83 in the game uh the 43 yarder you missed at the end but you made one from 54 earlier in the game yeah it actually was a postseason record at the time i mean it was it was a it was such a crazy game i mean gary uh, had five interceptions uh billy fumbled on the goal line I mean, we, we had so many ways to have uh, beaten them, but we just we just couldn't finish. We just couldn't finish the game, and it came down, you know, to that last kick. And I remember uh, in warm-ups that, the, that way that I was kicking, there was a wind that was kind of right to left, and it was moving the ball at least like, you know, half the width of the, the upright. That's how much wind there was. And at the old um, uh, stadium that 49ers had um, – it was kind of a swirly wind too because of that baseball configuration that they had. And so I just went with my, my pregame analysis and, and I didn't really notice the winds changing that much. It was pretty steady. And so we were on the right hash mark. So I'm going, okay, I'm going to hit it right down at the right upright, hit it hard. And if it blows like it did in pre in pregame, it will blow it in at least inside the upright. And, and I'll, I'll make it. Well, you, you and I both play golf, right? Yep. If you just nut a drive and wanting the wind to play, uh, uh, move the ball, if you hit it really pure, the ball won't move because you've hit it so good. And that's what I did. And the problem was it went – my aiming was like two feet. It yeah. went like a foot to the right of the upright. It moved a little bit, but it didn't move enough to go inside the upright. It went right – right beside the upright and the problem was i hit the hell out of that thing and it didn't move so i learned then never to aim outside the upright yeah Yeah, so i learned from keep it inside keep it inside the hole (laughs) keep it inside it you know exactly so i and again I, i did everything that i wanted to do i hit it pure i hit it where i aimed it was slightly outside the upright, maybe a little, you know, off from where I wanted it to go. But I, I did tell myself, aim at, aim at the upright, and I almost hit it, but it didn't go in. Uh, that's a tough one, but you know what? Again, you said it. The kickers have to live with that kind of stuff. You were spectacular your entire career, and that shouldn't be the one that defines you. But you mentioned the name Billy Sims, and you're in a unique perspective in many ways in that you saw two of Detroit's greatest running backs ever in Sims, and then you were there when Barry Sanders came in. Yeah, played three years with Barry. I, yeah. know, I don't know whether you like to compare and contrast, but, um, I mean, I remember calling every one of Barry Sanders' professional runs, and I don't think I've seen anybody with the football that was any better. Now, I saw Billy run the ball, and he was spectacular, but Barry just had that juke, that move, left-right, jump-stop thing that he did that uh, just was otherworldly. What was your comparison of the two? Barry has a gold jacket. Billy, if he was healthy, I think he would have had a gold jacket also. 
but they were two different types of running backs. I think you and I will agree. We have never seen anyone run a football like Barry Sanders. You cannot compare him to anybody that has played or is playing in the NFL to date. He would juke back and forth and jump step and do all this reversing of of play and all of that stuff. But when he put his foot in the ground and he wanted to go forward, no one did it as quickly as he did. That's he a fact. could hit a hole. He could break through uh, a defense and break through uh, tackles. That, I mean, look at the Chicago run that he had where he was just like peeling guys off his legs and going down the sideline in, uh, when they played in Chicago. You know, you, you, you don't see backs like Barry Sanders in the game today. And so that's why he has a gold jacket. I wish Billy got to have the career that he wanted which was longer than he, he played, but he sure was spectacular to watch also. Well, I like to say about Barry, and, and you probably agree, he made great players look silly sometimes. Mm-hmm. And that's hard to do in the National Football League. These are top gun guys. And I'll never forget against Tampa, John Lynch, a safety, unblocked, comes right down in the hole. Tampa had this play absolutely diagnosed. Barry's unblocked, walks up to Lynch, an all-pro, and Lynch never laid a glove down, and Barry went 80 for a score. I mean, you just don't do that to great players. That's a great play, and and John Lynch has a gold jacket too. Exactly. <laughs> you know, so that's what he was doing it up against. He was up against the, the highest caliber of players uh, in his era, and these guys were all pros, but he made them look awfully silly sometimes. He did. Again, another uh, comparison thing. You uh, – Everybody makes the comparison who was better, Barry or Emmett. And you played with Emmett when you won your Super Bowl ring. Before yeah. we get to the Super Bowl and the team, uh, tell me about the Emmett-Barry argument. Well, it's funny. When I <clears throat> tried out for the Cowboys and uh, uh, made the team, one of the first persons, because uh, my locker was close to him, was uh, Emmett. And, uh, you know, he shook my hands, hey, welcome forward, you know, all this kind of stuff. He goes, you and I need to talk. And I'm like, what the hell did I do? You know? and so <laughs> that, had to be, lunch, that had to be one of those things yeah. where you're going, wait a minute, what did I just do? Well, so then when we broke for our, our meetings and, you know, they had lunch catered in uh, to the old Valley Ranch uh, practice facility and uh, Emmett goes, what was Barry like? And he, for the whole year, kept asking me about all kinds of stuff with Barry. What did Barry hear? You know, how was he? He was this. One of the first things he said, he goes, you know what? If Barry had my offensive line in front of him, he would be running for 2,000 yards a game, a year. And he goes, I'm so blessed to have what I have in front of me. It's just too bad Barry didn't have as high of a caliber of offensive line in front of him as I do now. And, of course, that's why Emmett's the leading rusher in the NFL history because of those guys that he had in front of him. And, uh, Barry still got a, a gold jacket like Emmett does, but uh, he was enamored and absolutely uh, in awe of uh, Barry Sanders. That's just thought he'd never seen anybody like him. Well, ever. I don't think any of us have. What a great story! Did you tell Emmett that Barry didn't talk very much? That he kind of wandered around like he's just standing around watching the day, you know, watching the world go by, and then just did his thing. Because Barry was a unique well, personality that way. 
Yeah, he he was, and I I don't I always tell the story because I remember I don't know how the hell he could do it short in such a short period of time, but um, there was always like the, you know the odd game like you know a Monday night game or for us the Thanksgiving Day game where you know halftime was always a little bit longer than like a regular game, um, and uh, the odd time and depending on the game or something like that I would uh, and it was usually at home, it seemed like he would do it, but he would go over, you know, the stools that we had in front of our locker and stuff like that. He would get, you know, some, uh, some towels and put them on like the bottom foot rung of the stool and he would fall asleep. (laughs) He would, he would take like a five, you know, eight minute nap. He would be sleeping. I'm going, how the hell can you do that? How can you let your body be that relaxed and relax your mind because of all of the stuff that you have to worry about and the game going on for him. And he would just n- fall asleep for five minutes. Or so. <laughs> I, I just don't know how he did it. I, but yeah, I mean, if, uh, if it would be pulling eye teeth to get any kind of a conversation out of Barry, you know, he only spoke when, uh, you know, he had something really worthy to talk about. And even then, it wasn't a rambling uh, conversation, no. but uh, he, he's definitely gotten better. He, he was, yeah, he has. I mean, he's doing the Heisman House tr- uh, commercials now, so and I'm glad he's yep. enjoying that success and and taking that to the next level. I love Barry because he was he was so unassuming. He was just such a regular guy. I'll never forget. I used to do interviews in the uh, little meeting room off of the locker room after games mm-hmm. at uh, Pontiac, and I remember getting Barry in there. We could have got him in every game, you know, but so, but Barry didn't like that. He wanted to get some other guys in there. So, you know, Brett and Herman, some of the guys would come in, but I remember when Barry came in at one point and it was very unprofessional of me. I had a thing I wanted him to sign so I could give it to a friend for a charity event. And I remember Barry looking at me, this is after a game. He just gained 200 some yards, did something incredible. I said, Barry, do you mind signing this for a charity event? The university of Michigan deal. I got to give it for Mott hospital. I think. He goes, sure, I'll do it if you give me an autographed picture of your wife. <laughs> and I said, okay, I'll get Robbie to give you an autographed picture. And he said, okay, done. And he signed it and everything was fine. But that that's who Barry was. And he was such a yeah. unique individual. Mm-hmm. No, he sure was. I mean, uh, uh, he just was uh, for unassuming, but he just uh, showed a lot of class he did. on and off the field. He did and, indeed. Uh, you know, and, and just the example of him scoring a touchdown and handing the football to the official his whole career kind of exemplified type of personality that Barry has yeah one of the things about football is that everybody plays the game because you want to win the big prize in the NFL uh, there's either the Super Bowl win or there's nothing I mean that's just what the game is and that's what the NFL is all about you got your chance with the Cowboys yeah. and you saw a team you matter of fact in the Super Bowl game you were three of three on field goals three of three on extra points. And in that game, though, or in that season, you got an opportunity to see what it takes to get to a Super Bowl. Lions have never gotten to the Super Bowl. What does it take? What's the team that makes it? What do they have? Because you've had the opportunity to see both, Eddie. The fortunate thing for me, you know, of course, I, I came in after they had won the Super Bowl the year before in the Rose Bowl when they had the big blowout game against. Uh, the Buffalo Bills and so they're riding high and to come in and you know make changes especially the change 
that they made in my position at the time because um, Lynn Elliott was the kicker before, had a great um, season the year before. But then all of a sudden, the following year and in preseason, he just was having difficulty. It's actually uh, the Cowboys played the Lions in the London game. Remember the London Bowl game that I they sure... played the preseason yeah, game? Yeah, I, I was there uh, for that so, one. Yeah, so – in that game, actually, uh, I think even Jason had some difficulty in that game uh, also, but it kind of started from that game where he just wasn't playing like he did the year before, and it became a concern for the coaches. And so, um, but the, the other element that wasn't there for them at that time was Emmett was holding out for a new contract. So he didn't go to camp, didn't play in preseason, and didn't start the season on the on the active roster. So the first game of the year was a repeat game against the Buffalo uh, Bills. And they lost that game, and then they played the Washington Redskins the following week um, in uh, Dallas, and the game came down to kicking a field goal near the end of the game to tie the game to go into overtime or to go for a play. It was, it was fourth and goal, like fourth and eight, you know, they're on the eight yard, seven yard line, something like that. And uh, they decided to go for the win because Lynn had missed a couple of kicks in that game. And Jimmy had mentioned that he knew he was going to make the change after the game and they went for it and didn't get it. So they were and two. So they made the determination that they got to get Emmett in. So both Emmett and I signed the same day uh, on that Tuesday, the following after that game, going in. And the thing was, it was like they knew that that was the one thing that they needed was to, well, two things, really. They needed to get Emmett in as soon as they could, and they needed to change the kicker because the team just lost confidence in him, as well as, Coach Johnson did, and that was the key person. He's the guy who makes the decision. And so when they made the change, and I came in, uh, I mean, I was older than my coach. So my coach was <laughs> my coach was Steve Hoffman, who they were one of the. I think it was only, they were the only team in the NFL that had a kicking coach. They had Joe Lavazano as the special teams coach, which was usually who would coach the kickers. Babysit us is basically what they did. Most of the guys didn't know how to kick a ball in their life. But they had Steve Hoffman, who was a kicker in the USFL and a punter. And they had him there to work with kickers and punters. And he was a film uh, breakdown guy also. And I was older than him. So when I got there, it was like, and then we started playing and I just started getting on a run. I, I think I made my first. I don't know, nine or 10 field goals in a row. And it's just like they could exhale. They didn't need to worry now when they needed three points. And um, they, the, 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 the thing that I, I noticed right away that was different was they expected um, each other at practice to give them as good a look as you possibly could of whoever you were playing that week. And, I, and the person I always... Uh, bring up in, in this uh, example was Michael Irvin. He was always coaching up the scout defensive backs. And if he wasn't getting the look that he thought he would be getting from 
the guys they were going to be playing against that week, he would yell and scream at these guys. He goes, look, you're not giving me a good look. I don't know what, what you're doing here. You're not giving me, you know, the read that I should be looking for. If I, if this is going to be a blitz, I, I, I need to see you guys doing this so I can make the right cut for Troy. And it became, Jimmy was practice 100% and give me the looks that we need or we'll be out here all day. And he left it up to the team to really um, kind of police each other, for lack of better words, about getting what you needed done. Jimmy said, hey, we're only going to be out here an hour and a half. Otherwise, if we don't get the looks that we want, we're going to just keep doing it and doing it and doing it. And they, the intensity at practice was palatable. It really was. These guys, you know, back that, that's when you would, you know, you would do goal line and you would hit each other. Now you can't do that. I mean, so they practiced hard. And uh, their big thing was getting the looks that they needed from whoever the team we were going to play that, that week. And uh, it was amazing how they just uh, really, would, they would always compliment each other. Okay, good. That's the look I want. That's what it was. And, and not only just from the coaches saying that thing, but also from certain players that really knew that, hey, you know, I'm going to have a tough time this week. I've got this linebacker I got to be worry, worrisome of. Or with Michael, his big thing was, you know, certain quarterbacks, you know, he knew he was going to get one on one coverage. Right. Um, you know, so he goes, I need you on my butt. Everywhere I'm going, you need to be on me. You know, you can't just let me go and practice. You've got to give me this look. And so, um, uh, yeah, it was amazing uh, that, that, uh, that how they practiced, the intensity that they practiced. And, uh, uh, and, you know, then, then we, you know, went on and uh, won another Super Bowl. Again, uh, you win Super Bowls because of certain things, and it sounds like that's one of the differences, and Jimmy Johnson did it. Speaking of Johnson, um, head coaches get so much in this league. In Detroit, you had three. You had Monty, and then you had Daryl Rogers come in, and then you had Wayne Fonts. Um, I, I like to kid Don uh, Clemens, who who is one of my favorite guys of all time, he Absolutely. went through, he went through like nine coaches. He lasted a lot of years. I called him Lazarus, and and he mm-hmm. laughed and he joked. But he had every coach had a different kind of sense, and and, and he didn't dislike any of them. Uh, certain things that they would do, he would say, "Yeah, I would have done a little differently." But for the most part, every coach has his own kind of way about getting things done. Talk to me about your three that you saw in Detroit, Monty, Daryl, and Wayne. Three different types of personalities. You know, uh, uh, Monty was uh, uh, k- kind of the old school stoic yep. um, type of uh, head coach um, and uh, really uh, wanted to have his finger in the pie on everything. You know, uh, he would, um, you know, stagger meetings so he could be in defensive meetings and offensive meetings and, and very involved in game plan of both, uh, had coordinators, but really oversaw what their decision-making was, was, you know, sometimes, you know, critical of play calling during the game, you know, didn't like things. Um, and, you know, just, you know, kind of uh, coach with a heavy hand, not only to the players, but also to the, to the coaches he was pretty demanding of the coaches sometimes and there would be outbursts and stuff on the sidelines or in locker rooms and disagreements with things and stuff like that so that that was that was coach clark where daryl rogers 
he relied on his coordinator. He, he relied on those guys to really get us ready, put the game plan together. He goes, Hey, I've hired you guys to, to, you know, run the defense and run the offense. And he just fluttered in and out. Yeah, He was more, you know, right. he was kind of very carefree kind of a guy. Yeah, well, Monty was hands on. He was kind of a hands off. He was, it was completely opposite of uh, coach Clark. So, uh, you know, what, with that, you know, we had a very strong personality defensive coordinator named Wayne Fonts. And then we all know what happened there. They gave him the position after they decided to part ways with Coach uh, Rogers. And then, uh, you know, he, he had a long tenure here. And with, uh, with uh, Wayne, his thing was basically he, would, he took the flying chance of bringing in the run and shoot. Yep. So I, I think, um, you know, at the time it was unique. It, he wanted to bring some excitement. You know, it never – uh, you know, they never, it was the West Coast offense. It was the Bill Walsh um, uh, offense that was winning Super Bowls. And, you know, the, the coaching tree off of Bill Walsh of people who did well with that type of offense. As you know, there's a litany of guys that uh, learned under Coach Walsh and uh, brought that type of offense. Uh, so what Wayne rolled the dice on the run and shoot that didn't work, you know, but he, always seemed like he would win enough games to keep his job. You know, it, it's funny. He has the tenuous the distinction of being the losing, <laughs> losing his coach in NFL history, as well as the winningest coach in NFL history. So he has most wins and the most losses. How that figures out. It is, Who knows? It, it, but, it, it's crazy. But again, it, it goes back to the thing about Detroit has had this, this town, you know, this town as well as anybody. There's such football crazies they love their lions uh, through thick and thin and and i always admired detroit fans so much i remember going to the silver dome when the lions were winning two games and uh, tampa came in once and they had only won three games and there were eighty thousand people in the place and yep. i just thought this is such a great city i mean do you see this group that dan campbell i think he's done a great job making that stride toward maybe this is the guy, maybe this is the group, maybe this is the management team that can take them to that promised land? Well, all, all indications are showing that. I mean, if you look at the early uh, odds makers that are out there, I mean, they're, they're touting the Lions to win the, uh, the division this year. They're touting them to be in the playoffs and to, uh, you know, kind of be more of a consistent team off of what they did last year. And uh, so, you know, that that raises expectations, and we've all been there with the Lions. There's, there's always huge expectations of the Lions each year because of the fan base being so solid as it has been for just decades here. And um, I actually see what the odds makers are seeing. I, I think the Lions should be competing for the division this year. Uh, and I, I think one of the unique things that has helped the Lions, and at the time I was a little apprehensive about it, is the Hard Knock Show. I think the Hard Knock Show gave other NFL players an inside look to Dan Campbell. There are going to be players now in free agency, because in years past with the system they're under now, with free agency and all that kind of stuff, if 
a free agent had an offer from the Detroit Lions and an offer from a team that had been winning a lot more, they're going to go there. They're not going to come to the Lions. So what do the, the Lions have to do? They have to put more money on the table to get that player to come. I think this offseason, you're going to have free agent players. If they get an offer from the Lions and they get an offer from a team that have been playing and winning in, uh, in the past, I think you're going to sway over some of these guys and not have to pay more money for them. I think it's going to open up more of an opportunity to have a better, higher level of free agent to come here in Detroit. And if we can fill some holes early before the draft, we've got a lot of, uh, a lot of assets in draft picks that we can really bring in some young guys that hopefully will be here eight to 10 years. And I think uh, Brad Holmes has done a great job so far, and I, I don't see any reason why he wouldn't continue it in the draft coming up. That's a great analysis, and I, and I think you're right. And again, future, we only know what happens. you got to win in that league, as you both, you and I both know. But I think, yep. you're, I think that's a great analysis, especially about you know, the hard knocks thing. I'd, I'd not heard that theory before, but that does. That holds some water to me. Guys know what's going on here. It looks like a, a comfortable and very good place to play, and I can win there. Yeah, and it also showed how tight the, the team is. You know, with all of the – you know, the guy singing with uh, Aiden doing the, you know, Billy Jean thing right. and, and Rodrigo doing his thing and seeing the guys getting all excited and, and uh, cheering them on and, and all that camaraderie. That's all that is. It's like, uh, you know, the military esprit de corps doing things together and, and, and working in, in one unit. And uh, they were all behind each other and, and, and the play changing like they did in midseason and things all of a sudden clicking and, Guys staying healthy, as you know. I mean, it, it's a game of attrition. Yeah, it is. Year in and year out, the teams that make the playoffs are usually the healthiest teams in the NFL. You know, look, look what happened to the Rams. Oh, I, mean, I know. The Rams won the Super Bowl, and then their team gets decimated with injuries of key players. You're, you're not going to win. It's just a plain fact. It's a game of attrition. And those guys, from the middle of the season on, they all started staying healthy. They all started playing together. They all had the same offense, uh, offensive line, which I think is one of the best in the NFL right now. And uh, these guys just started playing and making plays and winning games, and it becomes a habit after a while. And it's a nice habit to have. You bet it is. Let me ask you a couple more quick football questions, and then we'll move on to what you're doing now, which I think is amazing. The Hope Network couldn't have anybody better. But in the meantime, quick football question. Changes in the kicking game. They moved to mm-hmm. a kicking ball, Eddie. Is mm-hmm. did that make a difference? Do you think, or does it matter? It's still an NFL regulation ball. The only difference is it has a K on it that's burned on it for kickers. It used to be back when I played, the home team would prepare the balls. So Danny J, the equipment manager, in the past, he would you know you have to have two sets of bags with uh, twenty four balls. Um, I'm sorry, uh, 12 balls in each bag, and each bag gets used each half. So you have a first half football, the 12 balls, second half, and you prepare the balls. Well, what ended up happening where it got used was if, if you get, uh, I'm sure you know, if you get an NFL ball and you bring it out of the bag and out of the box that's been sent 
to you, it has a film on the ball. It does. Like a Vaseline film, film, right? So if you grab it like a quarterback and you start throwing around, you don't do anything to the ball. You just hang it out of the bag and grab the ball and you take, let's say, five throws and five catches. You look at your hand, your hand is orange. Yeah, it's right from the the manufacturer. Right? So the quarterbacks hated that because it's a slippery, greasy film that if they wiped it off, now the film's on their hand. As a quarterback, you can't have that. So just one position changed that, okay, we need to – because that film's on there to protect the leather – because you just never know, you know, if you're going to get a ball from the beginning of the year or to the end of the year. Wasn't it Danielson who so, used to spray the ball with a little solution? What, what ended up happening is there were all kinds of solutions that were coming up. Some from the manufacturer, some from the team, some from players and all that. So it got to a point, Tom School, Danny and I, we, were, we went to Danny J and you said, hey, Danny, let us work on some balls to see what Gary will like. Well, we ended up finding out that what he liked was we would get rubbing alcohol in a towel and rub off the film. And then we got like a a, a brush, like a shoe brush, you know, polishing your shoes, but a a little more abrasive than the polished side, you know, more of an abrasive, and not as abrasive as like a floor. Right, a little little stiffer. A little in between, just a little stiffer. And we would brush the ball up, and what it did was kind of brush up the leather. Like it had like a little stickiness to it. And Gary goes, oh, my God, this is great. So it would take the film off, and it gave the quarterback what Gary liked, which was, it, you know, he, he could grab onto the ball much better than before. So Danny says, okay, Tom, Eddie, you're getting the game balls ready <laughs> each year, each week. An extra job so, for you. So for us – as kickers and punters, because when the ball comes out, the seams of the ball are very stiff. Okay. So there's not a lot of pliability to it. So we started doing was we would push down on the points of the ball to break like the seams of the point, get it to be a little bit more rounder of a ball. Uh It wouldn't be visibly, it wouldn't look like a rugby ball, but I mean, you're you're just breaking the ends, the, 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 the tips of the ball push them into the ground, bend them down, and just kind of ply the ball when it's not fully pumped, and then pump the ball up to it 13 pounds, and it was ready. That's what we did. Well, there were some kickers and punters. I know uh, Greg Montgomery, God rest his soul, when he was with Houston, he had a thing where he would pump the ball up to like 18 pounds. He would put it in the sauna, and, you know, <laughs> these balls were, you know, they were blown up like crazy. And, I heard and some would, guys put it, the balls in, oh. I heard some guys put the balls in dryers and, and tumbled them. Oh, they did. Everybody had a different way of doing it. Well, then it became abusive. And then what ended up happening, it got to the point where teams were, then they changed the rule that the home team wouldn't provide the balls all the home team would do would provide the footballs in the bag or in the box, but they're mostly in little bags and they would give them to the officials and the officials were given a formula of what they needed to do. Like take the ball out of the bag, rub it down with this, use this brush, do this. And they had instructions about getting the balls ready. And that what ended up happening was, they then made the determination of having a kicker ball. So these balls are only going to be used when there is a punt or a kick 
in any way, shape, or form during the game. And those would be, like you see the guy on the sideline, he'll have a bib on that says K. Right. So when the officials want a, a K ball, they go, they look for the guy who has the K in his shirt and that he has the K ball. And they throw them out now. So that's what they do. So now the officials have total control over what these guys are kicking. And so they're actually kicking a ball that uh, I don't think they break the seams on the end of the ball, but, uh, you know, it's prepared for them. But every official does, and they, I, I, I'm aware that they have some kind of instructions of preparing the ball. And that's what they do. So every ball is given the same attention each week by the home team officials. Okay, last football question. They made the extra point longer. Good or bad? I mean, obviously, it's a little tougher. Guys have missed extra points more often than they did before. Good, bad, what do you think as a kicker? I'm curious as to why the guys are having issues with it because it's it's becoming, uh, you know, somewhat of a conversation piece and contentious sometimes during the game. I mean, you know, you know what happened tomorrow this year? Unbelievable. The, the Dallas yeah. is just unbelievable. I mean, I know if I played, I wouldn't have a job. But you know, it, it to miss four extra points in one game and. I, I I don't understand why. It, all it is, it's just a little, it's it's a short field goal. Why they have this extra point thing block in their head and they have the ability now to, to move the ball to the hashes where in years past, you always kick the extra point in the middle of the field. So to me, that's slightly harder of a kick. So if you're someone who kind of, you know, plays a little hook or, you know, something like that, then it, it's, you know, it can, it can uh, really weigh on you where you're going to aim if you're in the middle of the field all the time. Like, I always hated kicking field goals in the middle of the field. It just was a harder kick because you have to really kick it straight. Yep. And uh, sometimes you just kind of catch it a little higher on your foot or lower on your foot, and it affects the flight of the ball. So now you can kick an extra point on either hash mark. And to me, that's easy. You know, most right-footed kickers like the left hash because just like uh, a putt, you know, like I like right-to-left putts because I'm right-handed. All of us do, yeah. Right, you know what I'm saying. So it's just how your eye looks. So to me, I don't understand why it's become so difficult for these guys to make these extra points. You know, and it's like you said, I mean, I I missed five in 19 years. Some of these guys are missing five or more a year. I mean, yeah. Uh, And they're still keeping their job. I I just don't understand it. (laughs) It's, it must be a mental thing because physically you guys go through the motions. You can kick that in your sleep. Well, it, 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 it should be automatic. But, again, there's still someone snapping the ball and someone who is holding the ball. So there's always that element of error as well as, you know, sometimes you're going to have someone miss a block. Uh, but, you know, now you don't have any middle rush issues. You know, before when I played, you could hit the center. Now you can't touch the center on yeah. punts and extra points. Yeah. You can't touch him. So I don't have to worry about someone really coming up the middle. You can have someone come up over the guard, but uh, you know, it's not that worrisome like it used to be in the past. So now just aim, aim between the uprights and just hit it hard. Shouldn't be that difficult to do, but some guys are really having a tough time with it. Well, you loved Detroit when you came here and you made it your home, and now Detroit must love you because, Eddie, you're involved with the Hope Network. 
You're the donor yeah. community relations director. You're an advocate for people who suffer from physical, mental, and social barriers. And you're getting people involved in mental health awareness. And it sounds to me, and when we talked before we did this, that this is really a passionate you know, calling for you. Tell us about the Hope Network and, and what you're doing now post-career as a football player. Well, I'm, uh, I've, I've always been very aware uh, of the position I had as an athlete was to give back. Uh, you know, <clears throat> when I played, I, I was always at a lot of charity golf outings and doing uh, charity work uh, representing the Detroit Lions and never really kind of hung my hat on any any particular thing except cancer. So I both my parent, my father died when I was 14 from cancer and my mother died when I was 18 from cancer. So that was like the only one that I, I, I kind of was, you know, very passionate about. So anytime I got asked to do any cancer related speaking or golf outings or something, I, I was always there and always doing something as I was going through my career. And, and then of course, uh, post-career when I, I, I started working for a wire and cable company, uh, we supplied wire and cable for low voltage, you know, uh, and uh, fiber optic cabling for cell towers and stuff. And and I, I was like their uh, outside sales guy, and I, I would go around the country, you know, uh, opening up opportunities and stuff. And I got asked by a neighbor to attend a, a golf outing, and if I could help bring some uh, memorabilia from the Lions to this golf outing. And uh, I said, "Oh, well, what's the organization?" They said, uh, "It's called Hope Network." And I said, oh, okay, I've never heard of them before. And they, I, I said, yeah, I can help them. And so I got, you know, Matthew Stafford and, and Megatron and, you know, some, some of those guys to sign some stuff. And the Lions were kind enough to uh, donate them to me. And, and, of course, they said, Ed, you know, for doing that, you know, would you like to play? Well, you know me, Jim. <laughs> any any charity outing, any free golf, hey, I'm any, there. Right? At the so, drop of a hat, man. So I, I did. I, I attended the event. I became the memorabilia. Uh, got introduced to uh, Phil Weaver, who was the CEO of uh, Hope Network, and um, at dinner, Phil came over to me and thanked me for you know what I did, to donating the items and that. And he said, "Hey, I'm going to be uh, back in town next week. I'd love to take you to lunch. Uh, would you be interested?" And I said, "Sure." So at lunch and just kind of catching up with, and he's kind of giving me the you know the elevator pitch of all the things that Hope Network does. And I said, "Well, I've never heard of you guys." And he goes, "Well, we're based up in." Grand Rapids, uh, but we provide some type of services in any of the 83 counties. We do something, uh, but we don't do an awful lot down in the Tri-County area, but the Tri-County area has the highest population of need of all those service lines that we have. So they have uh, neural rehab um, services where they provide like 30,000 people in Michigan, neural rehab services, uh, uh, autism, early diagnosis uh, centers. They have uh, four of them. We have uh, a workforce development program where we employ people with physical and mental disabilities. That's when it started was to provide them with a job. So they were making a minimum wage job. And, and when the program got started, they went out to big box places. So we have big contracts with Kellogg's, and Amway, and Meyer and Kroger where we do like light sub assembly for lack of better words, like Kroger will send over four different flavors of potato chips and we put them into a variety pack. That's kind of like an example of the things that we do, but nothing strenuous, but they get a minimum wage. These are people that are wheelchair bound or their, uh, their mental health capacity is at a point where they, they can't really get a full-time job 
But this way, they get to do something. They understand what's happening. And we've had this program for uh, about 18 years. And it has now grown to the point that we hire refugees also. So we actually translate 11 different languages in our workforce development facility, as well as we also employ returning citizens to help them uh, get a job, resume build, give them some work experience, and then we want them to move on to a better job. So um, we have the largest independent transportation system in the state of Michigan. We provide transportation seven counties around the Grand Rapids area for people that get Hope Network services, whether it's rehab services, um, could be uh, autism uh, workforce development that we will go and pick these people up bring them to whatever service lines that they need to get help. If they need to go to the dentist. We take them to the dentist and then we can take them back home. So that's a gap problem in a lot of service lines around the state of Michigan. They have neuro rehab and autism services in the tri-county area, but a lot of the issues is they can't get to the facility. So Hope Network has figured it out. They figured the transportation side of things out. Uh, we have a uh, reading program uh, that is very robust. It's different than most. Um, Holly Wyndham, who is our director, um, has uh, come up with this. She started it in Minnesota for 15 years and helped over 40,000 kids get to a third grade reading level. The program is a tutor-based program, and it's in school. So the identified child that needs help will get 20 minutes of individual tutoring a day, five days a week for 14 weeks, which is basically a semester. And we're hitting 97% of the children get their third grade leading or above. That is So it's a different, it's un- a different type of program. But it but works. The results are, yeah. Well, that's the thing. I mean, I don't know if you know, Jim, but about, I think it's now about three years ago in the state of Michigan, they passed a law now that you have to pass the third grade reading aptitude test before you can move on. And as you know, in years past, that didn't always happen. So what was happening? Kids were graduating from high school. They can't read and write. They can't get a job. They fall into bad habits. You know, and, and so those statistics were very evident. So they, they mandated that they have to come get the third grade reading level or above. And, and Hope Network has a great relationship with Holly Wyndham. We're happy to have her on staff and we're just growing uh, our reading program. Also, I think we're in about 120 schools right now. And, um, uh, like I said, it, it, it needs, it needs more help. Uh, there are other great programs that are out there, but I, I don't think anyone can kind of touch the results that we get because Holly's been doing it for over 20 years and everything's data-based, uh, with what we're doing. And so, um, when I had this lunch, it was, so I, I got rambling about all the services. As you can tell, I'm very passionate about them. But yes, you are. When I was when I was at lunch with Phil, um, he said, "Hey, um, I would like to offer you a board position to sit on our foundation board at Hope Network." And I said, "Well, Phil, I'll be honest with you. I've never sat on a board. What do you want me to do?" And he goes, "I just need you to be an advocate for Hope Network." And we have quarterly meetings in Grand Rapids and. There are other philanthropic business leaders that are on the board. So we have Dan DeVos, who's uh, on our board. Um, uh, he's been a board member for over 25 years. Um, a lot of business people, a lot of the 
philanthropic people, you know, from Herman Miller and Meyer, and, uh, you know, Steelcase, so all of those big companies that are up there, as well as other people. They have uh, uh, some some great leaders up there that sit on the board, and I was honored to be asked. And uh, so for six years, uh, I just sat on their board, and uh, I had a uh, golf outing that I put together at Oakland University uh, every June. Uh, we have a golf outing there to raise money for Hope Network, and and kind of and that's kind of like what I did really for them for like the first six years. And the wire and cable company that I was working for, uh, we got bought out by another local company here, and they merged. And after nine months or so, redundancy was in place. So the owner brought me in and says, "Hey Ed, you haven't done anything wrong, but I have someone who does what you do from my company. <laughs> so I'm letting you go. You know, no harm. You know." I hope uh, you understand, but he just started to uh, let go of certain people because of redundancy, and so I got let go, and about a month or so later was the next quarterly board meeting in Grand Rapids, and Phil was asking how things were going. I said, oh, unfortunately, I got let go. And he goes, what? And he goes, look, let's meet afterwards. So I met him in his office after the board meeting, and he goes, look, um, how about if I start paying you for what you've been doing for free? And I said, what do you, what do you mean? He goes, I want to offer you a, a position at Hope Network as Director of Donor Relations for Southeast Michigan. Are you interested? I said, yeah, I am. Uh, you know, uh, so I just kept doing what I was doing, but they were kind enough to start paying me for what I've been doing. So I've been doing that for seven years now. Well, it's a, it's a nonprofit, and uh, nonprofits always need money and need uh, people to donate. Like you said, philanthropy yep. is important. If people were out there listening to this, how do they get involved in helping the Hope Network? Well, uh, the, uh, the best thing, to, so they get better educated, is to go to hopenetwork.org uh, online to uh, check out our website and our service lines. There's a, there is a donation tab that's there, uh, as well as uh, go to the events tab. Uh, if there's any events that uh, they would like to support and participate in, I know, like I said, uh, I have my golf outing in June at Oakland U. Uh, this year again, and i uh, be happy to have uh, some new fresh faces come and enjoy the day and uh, enjoy some camaraderie on the golf course. And we've been uh, raising some good money that way. And uh, also look at all the different types of service lines. They can actually donate to whatever the service line that they want. If they want to support our autism services or our reading program or our uh, transportation system, our newer rehab. Um, we have a lot of different types of, uh, service lines that we provide for the people of Michigan. Um, you know, we have about 3000 employees. So we're, we're one of the biggest in the state. And like I said, we provide some type of services in every County in Michigan. So, uh, if people have a passion to, uh, uh, support and donate, uh, go to the website. Eddie, you're a treasure. It's great to hear you so passionate about the hope network and, um, you are a treasure in regards to the history of Lions football and just football and professional football. And gosh, we're glad you're still in the community. Thank you so much for being with us. Well, thank you for having me on your show. I appreciate the opportunity. Thanks for joining us today on Conversations With. You're more than welcome to go back and listen to past episodes of some of the conversations I've had with athletes, newsmakers, and personalities that have been kind enough to join me on Conversations With. 
I also invite you to go to my website, jimbrandstatter.com, and explore my blogs and other activities. Just as a heads up, I enjoy cooking, reading, and photography to name a few hobby-type things. My website features some of those hobbies like food recipes, book reviews, photography that some have told me, borders on the frameworthy, and interesting videos from my broadcast past. When you visit jimbrandstatter.com, you can explore them all. Let me know what you think on the Contact Me page. In the meantime, check out my YouTube channel, The Brandy Show, and become a subscriber. I also have a Facebook page and Twitter account if that's more your style. So keep an eye on those social media sites for details on new episodes of my podcast, Conversations With. I'll let you know when they're up and ready to go. Thanks again for joining us on Conversations With.